This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we had to talk about in this episode include... Abstract versus Emotional Rules. Brutalist Architect, Owen Luter. And My Origins Book Hall. Robin, what's better than dinosaurs? Hmm, I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait, didn't they make Niambi and Northern Crown too? Yes, for third edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's going to be excellent. Tell me more! Plain Gia is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs! Live on Kickstarter until November. November 18th. Search for Plain Gia. That's plain as an airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the friendly confines of the gaming hut. But what is that? That's not Peter Frampton. That's just some sort of white album. I don't even know what that is. And those, those aren't dice. It's a, it's a diceless uh, game we're playing somehow. And, and those aren't miniatures. Those are tiny Alexander Calder mobiles. Well, that's actually kind of cool, <laughs> frankly. And the Doritos, of course, are the same because the Doritos are already the platonic form of delicious snack. In the gaming hut, we are once more positing two opposing ends of a slider or an axis, depending on uh, how you like to flavor your technical verbiage. In this particular case, the two ends that Robin has suggested from his wealth of experience in game design are the interestingly chosen abstract versus emotional. And I'm not sure if I or Willem de Kooning should be angrier at this dichotomy, but I'll let Robin take a whack at explaining that one for us. Right. And so uh, what I'm talking about here, and this is something where I think of myself as being on one end of the slider, but in order to remain on one end of the slider, I sometimes have to examine whether in fact that's what I'm doing. But it's something that I've picked up from my uh, work consulting for other people on their designs. And it is the question of, is your rules mechanism, your resolution mechanic in a role-playing game, uh, whether that is the core resolution or is a a subsystem, whether that its uh, impetus is abstract or uh, mathematical, is about, it is a rule that comes out of your interest in rules, or is it the mechanism itself that interests you, or is it focused on what emotional response that it's generating in players and uh, also with the GM at the table. So, for example, an abstract rule will be, well, I've been, you know, thinking of something that worked on more kind of a logarithmic scale, and I have this really, you know, interesting uh, sort of an equation, and I think I really wanted to explore that. Or it's like, well, I've been 
you know, inspired by this other resolution mechanic, but I thought, you know, there are all these interesting implications if you roll under the difficulty number instead of over the difficulty number. And, or I've got this really great uh, chart that, uh, that you work off of for everything and it resolves everything. Or I wanted a game where you used every single die in the dice bag. Or Luzaki back in the day made me a promise on a magic mushroom to make a game that uses D32s or uh, any of these, uh, you know, I figured out a way to do space combat where it's all about you know, movement on a map instead of rolling dice, whatever that is, that those are all rules abstractions where your initial inspiration is, is literally about the tool itself and how uh, that works. And there's a lot of designers who uh, worked that way. And certainly, I think it took a long time before anyone came along and asked the question, well, what is the feeling that I get rolling a d20 against a uh, an armor class versus this other choice? What what feeling does this die roll create at the table? However, that's a question I ask myself a lot. And so my starting point is never, here's an abstract rules mechanism or uh, algorithm that I'm going to start with, but rather, what feelings do I want people to have at the table? So, therefore, the core resolution system in Dying Earth is about one-upsmanship. You roll, and then someone else can mess with your roll. Or in Gumshoe, it's about, well, there's two resolution systems, depending on what you're doing, and this resolution system I want to be uh, very simple, and this other one I want to give you uh, still a lot of control over, but also make you feel, do I want this control now or do I want it later? Right. So that's an example of an emotionally driven rule where it's like, okay, what feeling do I want people to have? And then work backwards from there into uh, what the actual rule is. And there, as in everything in a slider, there's a midpoint. And as a midpoint, I'm going to pick Earth Dawn, where Greg Gordon's rules for uh, Fossa's sort of fantasy twin sibling of Shadowrun uh, the whole idea was of that game is we're going to take everything in D&D and make it make sense in the world, including leveling up. And what could be more like leveling up than getting more and bigger dice every time you increase in power? And so uh, Greg uh, designed something that uh, has an abstract quality to it and an, a certain abstract aesthetic beauty, but also reflects the emotional feeling of becoming more powerful in a very measurable and also very complicated and very noticeable way. So, Ken, those are my uh, ends of the slider, abstract versus emotional. Which end uh, do you prefer to be on and how do you get there? I mean, I think that for me, I'm happy to design with an emotional game system, whether it was designed initially that way or built into an emotion that uh, emerged out of play. So, you know, classically rolling a die 20 to hit that has, you know, just the raw emotion of, did I hit? I'm happy. I'm not happy. And the addition of the natural 20, I think is more of an emotional die decision. There, there's no real reason to assume that 5% of all hits are extra good, but you want that double shot of adrenaline. When you roll it, you, the knowledge that something good is going to happen. It's Christmas morning there in the dungeon. So you're, you're super excited by that. So it's not really, uh, you know, lots of stuff falls in the middle of the slider that you might think is all at one end. You know, D&D &D is, you know, right out of wargaming rules. 
Uh, but of course, anyone who's played a war game knows there's ample emotion in those little turns of the die on the CRT. The CRT itself is designed, I think, by your lights abstractly because it's either intended to represent the reality of, you know, armored combat in World War II or whatever, or it's intended to abstractly be easy to memorize and get out of your way so that you can make your tactical decisions, both of those abstract sorts of values. So I think that instinctively, I am a find a mechanic that is robust. I'm a golfer, right? I reach into the golf bag. Uh, you get your sand wedge for sand. You get your driver for uh, banging it a long distance. You get your putter for putting. All these mechanics do different things. And therefore, it is the interplay of those mechanics that interests me. And that often builds to an emotional result. But that is because I believe any sort of play has to involve an emotional result. And your emotional result can come from something as simple as rolling a die to win. And I feel like, you know, when they straightened out armor class, that might have been a bit more of an emotional thing because it got confusing looking at the table. Well, you know, if you decide we're always rolling high, that is an emotional decision, right? Uh, you're, you're deliberately cutting off half the possibilities of your engine, but you want that emotional reinforcement that rolling high is good. So that's an emotional decision that, again, seems abstract. Right. Although you can come to that decision in two ways, right? And there's the question of intent versus result, which we'll get back to. Yeah. But even as a designer, you can be thinking uh, high is good because people like high numbers. Mm -hmm. That's the emotional choice. Or you can say to yourself, high is good because it's intuitive that higher numbers are better than lower numbers. And so on the design thought end of things, uh, you can reach the same conclusion in two different ways. Right. Yeah, and again, uh, it's not a big secret that one of my design, you know, gods is Sandy Peterson. And he takes a relatively abstract system, the RuneQuest percentile dice uh, and the RuneQuest fragile characters and figured out how to build a very emotional mechanic, the sanity death spiral into it. And that I think is my ne plus ultra is you take a robust abstract system that does what you want has a reliable outcome, and then you try and build, like you're building the mosaic out of colored stones. The stones themselves aren't beautiful, but when they're all together, holy cats, that's a, that's a Roman hunting a tiger or something really cool, and that's what you like. And I feel like that also rewards the sort of, or re reflects even, the actual practice of gaming in which you're thinking about one thing and you're doing another thing, and then you realize, oh, all of this has come together, and now we're in something bigger than just uh, Monday night, right? Something bigger and more fun has emerged from it. And I think that to that extent, I'm an emotional designer because I want the process of engaging with these abstract tempered rules to produce that emergent emotional state in the player. And admittedly, uh, since I'm a better setting guy than I am a actual uh, nuts and bolts designer, I try and cheat and accentuate that as much as I possibly can with setting choices and with the language. But I feel like it is incumbent upon any designer to know what the abstract engines do and then to decide, you know, judiciously what you want the game to feel like. So it's it, it to me, you can't do one without the other particularly well. Right. And I think that you will. It, it's important to, first of all, say that any rule is going to have an emotional valence. The question is, how in control of that valence are you and what you favor? when you get playtest feedback or when you refine your rule mm -hmm. and decide what direction to go in. So if you find out that, you know, people are 
angered and frustrated by this rule, you can go, well, uh, I'm not shooting for anger and frustration. Uh, why is it that they're angry and frustrated? And uh, the abstract designer might go, well, you know, there's, that's because the, the math isn't right because the statistics are wrong. Whereas the emotionally driven designer is going to go, so what's actually happening to create this incorrect response uh, at the table, you know, or uh, this rule that I thought of as a, a sort of gloss on these other rules that, uh, uh, you know, has a different mathematical model. What What is this causing for people? There's also the fact that the notion of extreme rationality, whether it is in following a complicated, mathematically elegant rule or in argumentation is itself an emotional stance and appeals to people. So the, the idea that we're, we're just simulating things, we're just simulating the way these two tanks react to each other is not an unemotional choice, uh, but it is a emotional choice of what to favor and be interested in, of the, the hard, crunchy, metallic things clashing up against each other rather than being interested in the people in the tanks. That, too, is an emotional choice. And so all rules, I think, do in fact have, uh, as I said before, an emotional balance. And the question is, how aware are you of that? So uh, I mentioned consulting before, and often when I'm talking to someone about their uh, design, uh, particularly people who have thought of themselves as possibly designing a game one day and are finally getting in, uh, they quite often are starting with an abstract rule that really interests them. And my question is always, so what are the players supposed to be feeling? when they use this rule. And often that is a question that abstract designers find baffling and find uh, hard to answer. And, and whether you start off as an emotional designer or an abstract designer, I think that's something that you uh, want to ask yourself. So, you know, I, as you say, any abstract rule, no matter how mathy, has a valence, has an emotional valence at the table, although it's harder to predict some of them you know, because again, players are all different and there are players who, you know, couldn't love looking things up on tables more and players who hate that and feel like it takes them out of the story. And that's right. That's, and that's getting us back into handling costs. Exactly. Mostly. And so handling cost also provides that emotional valence, but also any rule that is a rule has to have some abstract mathy or if then quality because otherwise it's not a rule no it's just a guideline just a guideline it's just, it's just like hey make stuff happen that's cool and you know many many people have had a great deal of fun with nothing more rigorous than that happening but i i feel like um as a game designer i have to push back against that a little except bit. then the players will ask or the gms will ask but what is cool to yeah, find that for right, me yeah. i've certainly had that experience mm -hmm. and, and again you know you can you know define by example as opposed to by model which is a whole different discussion aristotle pokes his head in yes it's like all right get out of here buddy so i feel like the uh you know asking it as a slider is it, it's a bit of a sleight of hand because to do it well at all, you have to be always thinking about both ends of the spectrum, as opposed to with some of our sliders, it's just like, yep, we're going to this end and devil take the hindmost. That's the, the way we want to do it. And this is almost more an identification of what you think about first rather than anything else, right? Except that you can find yourself thinking you believing yourself to be making emotional choices and then fall in love with a chart right. or fall in love with a, a particular way of handling, you know, 
except grappling, right? right. <laughs> I'm going to do grappling. My, you know, that you can start getting into the uh, the elegance of the math and lose track of what the uh, emotion is at the table, or you can uh, focus, as you suggest, so much on the feeling that you think you're evoking that you're having a rule that, for example, has other wonky characteristics that you didn't want it to have. So you're so focused sort of, on- of course, this is a swashbuckling game. There's a guy with a sword on the cover as opposed to, but there's not a tactical engine that it, that rewards improvisation. So it's not a swashbuckling game. Right. Uh, so for example, whether to have fumble rules is mm-hmm. uh, you can say, well, according to the structure of the whole rule set, since there are criticals, ergo, there should be fumbles that is balanced and abstract. Or you can say, well, this isn't a genre where Batman routinely trips and falls mm-hmm. and goes tumbling down the stairs. It is, however, a genre where Batman usually succeeds and sometimes awesomely succeeds. Yes. And then for Batman, read Vampires and then say, oh, that's where botched dice went right. <laughs> in, in 5e. Yes. So I think it is a slider because it's actually, of the things we're looking at, it is something that you grapple with more in the design process because you can find yourself slipping down one set of concerns when you want to be in one direction or vice versa. So for me, I've often, you know, oh, no, I'm going down a bunny trail of following the rigor of making everything kind of the same, whereas this is an exception and making this the same will make it worse because its emotional uh, value at the table will be uh, not what I'm shooting for. Will be deadened because it's the same as everything else. Well, once we've deadened our emotional values, I think that that means that we should put down our cups, not meet the host's eyes and slink out of the gaming hut into a commercial. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt... To recruit a vampire, yeah, yeah, we've been through all this. And the Dracula dossier director's handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries... For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the ring of Dracula either, or 13th age-style icons, or bibliomancy. Or a hand of glory, or red mercury, or hard-won advice and actual play reports. If only someone could gather up all that material that you and Gareth wrote after the fact. Someone has. You made Gar do it, didn't you? We've assembled. Gar has assembled. The cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page PDF. Available free with a special offer from the Pelgrane store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook standalone. Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agent's Core Book, the Director's Handbook, and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF entirely free with the code VAMP2021. And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pelgrane store bookshelves without further expenditure. Do nothing, Kickstarter backers. All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
Ah, once more we turn our gaze to the finest of huts, the noblest of huts, the queen of huts, its perfect proportion, its delicate ornament, its soaring materials, its triumph of the human spirit. Why, it is the architecture hut. Oh, my God, Robin, someone has driven a bulldozer through the architecture hut, and they've smashed <laughs> it with a big wrecking ball crane, and oh, there's nothing but horrific pre-stressed concrete being poured and tired up into the sky, making us feel like ants. Robin, we're in the brutalist architecture hut, the worst of huts. But oddly, we're doing it to celebrate a guy who sort of, I guess, backed into brutalism is is his version of it. And, you know, whether this is the Albert Speer argument, I just wanted the buildings to get built. We'll find out because we're talking about one of the English, not the father of brutalism, but the mass, one of the masters of English brutalism, a fellow named Owen Luder, who is an architect who died uh, earlier this year in October at the age of 93. So he had a good run. I should point out that we didn't do a hut when Helmut Jan, the great Chicago architect, died. But whatever, Owen Luter. Robin, make the case for giving Owen Luter his own hideous hut. So we're talking about brutalism today. We're going to talk later about how brutalism affects genre, specifically science fiction and the look of science fiction and, and uh, uh, totalitarian dystopian fiction, uh, which is A, why he gets his hut. But also I think there's a central irony in his story, which is that uh, he's an architect who lived long enough to see the signature style that he worked in so despised that almost all of his buildings were demolished during his lifetime. And the few that remain are, with with one notable exception, uh, slated for refurbishment. <laughs> <laughs> and, in fact, he was given the Rubble Award a tongue-in-cheek architectural equivalent of the, the Razzie Awards in film for having the most buildings demolished in his lifetime. So there's a horrible irony here. And as we talk about brutalism, uh, we should note that if this podcast were, you know, not just you and I talking, but we're somehow interested in balance and fairness of viewpoint, we would have to have someone on <laughs> to defend brutalism. There are de defenders of this style. But neither of us is, is one of them. So yeah. for balance, you may need to type in the words defense of and brutalism uh, into Google. Because you don't want to create a whole equal time precedent. That would be terrible. Tanky architecture. That's another good way to find it. So, Ken, why don't you suggest in a little bit more detail what uh, brutalism is yeah. and uh, where it came from and how to spot a bit of brutalism in your cityscape. In your cityscape. Okay. Brutalism is fundamentally a a faster, cheaper form of uh, Le Corbusier's machine for living. Uh, the notion that Le Corbusier has is that abstraction is politically correct and it creates equality. If everyone's living in a big cube, you can't be fancy because you live in a big cube. There's nothing to be fancy about. Uh, brutalism takes that insight, that political ethos, and turns it into generally monumental form, always made with materials that are visible on the, on the creation of it. Most often that is poured concrete. Sometimes it's steel. Every now and again, you get a little glass as brutalism sort of responds to the international style a little bit, especially as it, as it ages. There is a happy coincidence that the uh, French word for raw is brute. And so I believe it was Corbu even who used the term raw concrete architecture, concrete brute that became the soul of 
brutalism. And, and I use the word soul completely incorrectly because brutalism has no soul. Architecture <laughs> classically is about the, the human proportion. Uh, this goes all the way back to Vitruvius, the beginnings of the, of the art form the, to the Greeks. Uh, it's about human proportions. And when a human stands even below a magnificent piece of pre-modern architecture, such as, you know, Notre Dame Cathedral or the Parthenon, they are welcomed into it. It is part of them and the, uh, and it is built to their proportion. And often there are ornaments or other elements that create that stepping up from man to monument. Now, brutalism says that is uh, ideologically unsound on the one hand, that's your Corbusier talking. And on the second hand, it's expensive and hard. And we've got a lot of uh, people that are suddenly qualifying for architecture school. And the only thing we have for them to build with is concrete and all of our budgets are low. So let's do that. And this is why brutalism is the architecture of choice in, say, 50s Britain and uh, 50s France and 50s everywhere else that got bombed flat in World War II. Why it is the choice of rich, happy North America is a question left for the devil to ask them in hell when he sees them. <laughs> but uh, brutalism exists to remove that relationship between man and monument. And you see a precursor to brutalism in Albert Speer's monumental neoclassicism. And you even saw that in the neoclassicism of the French Empire, which was, again, about making the citizen feel small underneath the enveloping uh, god of the state. And, you know, Napoleon's architects did that. Napoleon III's didn't because he was not actually very serious about anything, but uh, certainly Speer did it for Hitler. And you see some of this pre-brutalist ethos coming into monumental architecture, such as the Palais Chalon in, uh, in Paris, yes. and, which and is every cathedral does the same thing. Well, it's, but every cathedral also, uh, or every good cathedral also very explicitly adds human scale elements. So you walk into Notre Dame, on the one hand, you feel dwarfed by the majesty and power of God, but on the other hand, there's a million things inside it, both architectural and ornamental, that remind you that you are part of this universe, that you belong here and that it is for you. Uh, and that is down to, you know, the height of the pulpit or the, you know, the, the proportions of the, of, of the ornament on the, on the, on the, on the nave pillars or whatever, oh, before you even get to all the human scale statues that are everywhere inside it. And, you know, even a, a grand Protestant church with fewer icons and idols will still have that human scale that you get from, say, the Roman Parthenon, which is again a, a gigantic, or Pantheon rather, which is again a gigantic monumental scale building, but it's about, you know, humans. And that is the difference. And so if you walk into your city center, probably, and you're walking to a most likely government funded or government building, and you feel dwarfed and crushed, and there is no or very little ornament, or the ornament is merely the wooden molds of the concrete, which were allowed to dry in place, you're probably dealing with brutalism. If you feel like a tiny scurrying ant, you're probably near a brutalist building. That's what, that's how you can tell. Right. And as you suggest, these are buildings built to uh, house uh, people or commerce and to be as cheap as possible. Uh, so to get back to uh, Luther kind of quickly, he is not the brutalist architect that you would depict in uh, film or uh, fiction. He worked his way up from humble beginnings as the son of a single mother, which is tough to do anywhere, especially mm -hmm. tough to do in, in, 40s in England. <laughs> and uh, he also uh, served the profession. He was twice head of the Royal Institute of British Architects, uh, one 
colleague eulogized him on Twitter by saying he was the only person committed or mad enough to serve as president of the RIBA on two separate occasions. And he says that he never set out to make brutalist buildings, but was responding to the material shortage of the time that steel was rationed even into the 60s in the UK. And so they had to make things, make these vast buildings, uh, mostly of uh, concrete. And so he, uh, and you can still, uh, the buildings live on in photography, even though they've been uh, demolished. And often because they were either commercial centers, that means they're very ripe for being uh, demolished and replacing, placed by something uh, fancier by developers, or they were housing. And of course, the problem with a super demoralizing scale building is you don't want to live in it. And right. so there's a big uh, problem there. Um, among the things that he built and have since been demolished is the most famous piece of brutalist architecture in all of cinema, which is the car park of the Trinity Square development in Gateshead, which opened in 1967. It bankrupted its developer. But in 1971, it's in the classic gritty crime film Get Carter. And uh, I'm not going to describe the scene because it's the end of the film. Because it's a spoiler. If you haven't seen that uh, great film of Michael Caine. But that car park lives on in cinematic history, if not uh, physically, because it was demolished in 2010. And I believe Gateshead is also where Kubrick filmed a good bit of Clockwork Orange. Uh, I don't know if it was in the car park, and I don't know if the car park is visible, but there's other brutalist structures in and around the Gateshead neighborhood or borough or development or whatever they call it that definitely became part of Clockwork Orange. Right. And again, for the same reason, because, uh, and I guess we're getting into it now, because uh, brutalism becomes synonymous with a dystopian future. And whether that's the Clockwork Orange dystopia of neglect or the 1984 uh, or equilibrium, although equilibrium is a little more spear, I feel, than pure brutalism, of uh, the active uh, tyranny. Either way, you have the great visual sense that our hero is small and ineffectual when he's in it. And one of the many wonderful things about Get Carter is that in many ways, the brutalism becomes a reflection of the world that Carter is returning to. And again, we don't want to spoil the movie, but watch that movie for God's sake. Right. Well, let's get into then the science fiction angle and then we'll come up and back around and put a few more buttons on the uh, own leader story. So, Yes, it is a huge visual uh, influence on futuristic and particularly dystopian futuristic films. And therefore, also, you see it uh, referenced in science fiction illustration uh, book covers. It is one of the uh, drop mark galleries of reference, uh, inspirational reference that are provided to the artists on the Yellow King role playing game uh, for Aftermath, which is a post dystopian setting in which you are recovering from having just overthrown a dystopia for uh, the illustrator of that book, uh, Jennifer Lee. I provided a whole bunch of uh, reference points of actual brutalist buildings and also of the films that reference brutalism. And indeed, the futuristic side of things, which is epitomized by the then hopeful, but very uh, rapidly afterwards, uh, sort of gloomy and weird 1967 Expo Pavilions in Montreal. That is then used as the setting for Robert Altman's foray into dystopian science fiction, uh, Quintet, uh, with all sorts of snow. It's the uh, 
It's a wintry apocalypse. You don't get much of those anymore, but the Expo Grounds become the basis of that. As you suggested, Ken, there's lots of brutalism in Toronto, which is currently being uh, not so much demolished as being refaced with glass <laughs> pavilions and stuff added to it. Denny Villeneuve and his film Enemy only photographs the brutalist uh, parts of Toronto and uh, slaps a grim uh, Christoph Kieślowski filter on them uh, as well. You mentioned a bunch of other films that have that aesthetic. The, I think, not explicitly science fictional, but definitely dystopian film of J.G. Ballard's High Rise uh, by Ben Wheatley absolutely focuses on the grim uh, 1970s uh, brutalist landscape of, uh, of, of Britain. Uh, Brazil gives you a brutalist dystopia that shows you that. And, and also, on top of that, the stuff stopped working and it's in <laughs> decay and it's kind of falling apart. Which is an, another uh, slam on brutalism is that you're exposing all those structural elements. Well, guess what they're exposed to? The weather. And <laughs> concrete looks really even worse somehow after several Chicago or Toronto winters. And somewhere a pipe has leaked and so there's a rust stain running down what was once the unmarred, unforgiving gray face of the state. So on the one hand, you know, it's correct. The state will, in fact, crumble and fall apart and let you down. But on the other hand, it's also just plain hideous. Yeah. And the university I went to, York University in, in Toronto, was built in the late 60s, early 70s, is extensively brutalist, looks especially brutal in winter with melting snow running mm -hmm. down it, and also had the effect of creating wind tunnels between all of these massive concrete blocky buildings so much so that there was an urban legend that it was actually designed the campus was designed for uh, southern california and just transplanted here where it would have that horrible uh, effect and so uh, i went to university in a dystopian future and have yes. been escaping from it ever since walter netch who is one of the worst architects ever to build anything designed the entire campus of the university of illinois at chicago in that same wind tunnels, grime, and unsafety modus. And there were absolutely urban legends. There were, you know, a uh, friend of a friend, horrible crime, true crime stories, everything you want. So if you're looking for a esoteric location, a brutalist college campus may be the best one in the world. Fortunately, the University of Chicago is primarily built in Gothic style, which is you know, cheap and meretricious, but at least it's not hideous. But Netch did build the library, the the largest, best library in America, and therefore the hemisphere. Um, it also looks like the spaceship of a particularly depressed interstellar civilization that landed and just gave up right across the quad from the lovely um, uh, Oxford-style gates. So it's uh, it's hideous, but, you know, it's also unusable inside. So it has that going for it. That's true. The mostly lovely uh, downtown U of T campus, uh, which is mere blocks from my apartment. And uh, their library, the Robarts Library, was a big concrete monstrosity. Yeah, it's like Darth Vader's the, helmet made out of concrete. Yeah, or it's sometimes <laughs> called the Death Star. It also looks like a concrete peacock. And they've just now added a postmodern glass pavilion to stick on the side to somehow uh, attempt to mitigate it and to uh, circle back as promised to looter that is happening to some of his buildings the ones that, that are in brutalist style that have not been destroyed there's one called eros house if you wanted to imagine a structure that looked as little like its name as it is possible <laughs> for a thing to look check out what that looks like on the uh, internet it's a big concrete box 
of, uh, of apartment dwellings, and uh, it has been partially resurfaced. There's another shopping center, the Catford Center, which has been slated for regeneration. Uh, we'll find out what that means. And uh, <laughs> the one building of his that uh, survives and will likely uh, continue to survive unmonkeyed with is the South London Theatre. And why is that? Well, because it was the itself a refurb of a Victoria fire station. And so you check it out. And, oh, it's a beautiful brick structure with all this ornament and everything. Nobody's going to knock that down yep. because whatever brutalist or utilitarian elements it has are caref carefully hidden inside the building. But if you want to give uh, people photo reference for your uh, dystopian alternate reality as in aftermath or your uh, uh, horrible future or indeed a Kiyoshi Kurosawa style industrialized horror setting, well, your uh, books of brutalist architecture are a great place to start. And uh, once we've uh, summed up uh, how to use unpleasant buildings in your no doubt very pleasant role-playing game sessions, it's time for us to uh, demolish this segment and set up a new beautiful refurbed one on the other side of this commercial. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keeping this podcast going is no mere abstraction, so please pitch in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Craig Maloney! John Rogers! Ross Ireland! Stephen Hammond! And Derek Heimforth! It's time once again for Ken's Bookshelf, as we catch up on uh, what Ken's book purchases are now that he's able to go out again into the wild. And uh, you're making up for lost time, this time with titles mostly from the book loft of German Village in Columbus, Ohio, the uh, site of the uh, beautiful Origins Convention. And uh, Ken, let's just uh, dispense with the ado and uh, pick up with a quintessential reference title, The Penguin State of the World Atlas, 9th edition by Dan Smith. Yeah, I don't know how many people are familiar with this series. Dan Smith is, uh, I guess, the head or the chief writer at a very concerned knuckle-biting think tank, I believe in London, and they're uh, concerned about inequality and poverty and disease and all the other stuff that you'd be concerned about if you're at a London think tank. And they recognized or believed that no uh, current reference atlas 
focused on this, you know, every now and again, you get an atlas that says, here's how tungsten flows, but very few atlases would say, here's how capital flows. And so uh, Smith and his uh, cartographer team put together a pretty solid in terms of the research and often surprising and interestingly formatted bunch of maps on these sorts of social and uh, economic themes, as opposed to sort of the more conventional uh, Atlas type stuff. And some maps better than others, some editions better than others. I think this ninth edition, they've gone less for the cartogram and more for the art that looks sort of like a map, which I feel is a, it's not the direction they want to go. And this is the one that uh, came out, I believe in uh, 2011 or something like that. This is not the most current one, which I believe is the post-pandemic one. So if you want to buy the actual state of the world instead of the state of the world just after the Great Recession, you want the 10th edition. But that was not the one that was on sale for $4 at the Book Loft of German Village, Robin. So that's the one we're talking about. Next, we come to Labyrinth of the Spirits by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Yeah, when I was writing uh, Bookhounds, I was looking for other books about, you know, book hunters, book-obsessed novels, that kind of thing to, to go with Club Dumas, which was one of my touchstones. And I thought, well, there have to be more of these. And I discovered the Spanish author, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, who I guess is technically maybe a Catalan author because he's from Barcelona. He wrote a book called The Shadow of the Wind, which was tracking down a man who destroys one author's books. And that seemed kind of uh, fun and it was good. It had sort of a magic realist noir feel with books as the focus of it. Uh, there was another one called The Angel's Game that I read. And uh, then I didn't read um, The Prisoner of Heaven, which is the third in the cycle. And Labyrinth is the fourth in the cycle. And so I saw Labyrinth for half price and thought, I will buy that because at some point I'm going to finish out the other uh, half of that series. The first two were really good. I mean, absolutely, you know, literature, world literature class books. Uh, sadly, uh, Zafon died in 2020 at age 55. So uh, we are cheated of, of many more books, but uh, there are at least two more for me to look forward to. Tiki Pop, America Imagines Its Own Polynesian Paradise by Sven A. Kirsten. And I assume this is all about the uh, sort of twin phenomenon of the Tiki Bar and the Exotica music movement. This is mostly about Tiki Bars because it is from Taschen. That is the secret key to this book that you did not have. Taschen, the uh, German publishers of art books and any pop culture thing that can be illustrated sumptuously, they dive in. And so this is a Taschen book on Tiki. It was on sale for Taschen, which means it was still probably too expensive. But come on, Tiki's the best. And there's nothing better than a German lecturing you about America's uh, ridiculous love of the tropics to add uh, unintentional humor to the uh, discussion. Right. Because there's actually something quite poignant about reimagining that part of the world as sort of a kitschy uh, paradise, which is it comes out of the experience of men in the Pacific War. Exactly. Uh, So it is about taking the most horrible thing and creating this self-consciously a silly and foolish uh, dream of paradise and putting it on on top of it. Yeah, tiki culture slightly predates World War II. Don the Beachcomber was active in the 30s, but the national boom that the book is charting definitely is the result of, as you say, Pacific War veterans coming back 
and saying, this was the worst thing that ever happened to me. I would like drinks themed to it, which is the American spirit. It, it's how we got to the moon. Being of callbacks, why on earth would anyone build that modern architecture explained by John Zukowski? I haven't looked into it. I just bought it based entirely on the title and uh, the cover. Yeah, the, the cover was a sort of a postmodern, post-brutalist building that looked ridiculous. I enjoyed that, you know, willingness to lead with your chin. Uh, I assume that they're going to defend modern architecture as opposed to relentlessly mock it. But if I'm wrong, that's great. I'm still happy to have a book that relentlessly mocks it. But I believe that, you know, it's important in any worthwhile goal to let the other side have a, a chance to steel man their position so that when you bulldoze it and replace it with actually attractive buildings, you won't feel bad about uh, having been intellectually cheating uh, during the process. And it's beautifully illustrated, it looked like. Right. From the ruins of the present to the ruins of the past, Digging Up Armageddon, the Search for the Lost City of Solomon by Eric H. Klein. Eric Klein is a, uh, I think, biblically informed is probably the way to put it. He's a, a popular historian of the uh, ancient Near East. He's written some books that can more or less be depended on. This, I think, is his first step into relatively rigorous history. I believe he basically noticed that the University of Chicago dig at the Hill of Megiddo, the biblical Armageddon, uh, had lots of diaries and letters and no one had written a book about it. And he knew publishers who knew that the word Armageddon would sell. So this is an archaeological dig history, basically disguised as a, um, is the Bible true book? It's, it's not that at all. Uh, it's really, I think Klein, you know, getting fascinated by archaeology as he, you know, reads more and more of it for his, various projects of writing about the Bronze Age and saying, well, this is a, a process that goes back and forth and it's more than just dig up a statue and label it. How can I present this? So it's bits of it that I've uh, dived into have surprised me. And it's, and it's not that I don't like Klein. I think Klein is, is terrific and more people should be popularizing Bronze Age archaeology, but this is a departure for him. And I'm, I'm happy to, you know, have it and, and, and read it at some point. Speaking of words that sell books and sell books to you, you saw the word Templars in The Templars, The Rise and Spectacular Fall of God's Holy Warriors by Dan Jones, and I think had to buy it whether it's uh, solid or crazy. I did. You, you have precisely summed up my thought process, if we may use the term thought or process. Uh, it is emotional, not abstract, I guess. And this is a straight history. It is relatively recent. And this is a crapshoot. I don't know if it's a relatively recent good straight history or a relatively recent lazy straight history. Uh, we'll find out. I mean, on the one hand, his first name is Dan. That's a, that's a warning sign. But on the other hand, his last name <laughs> is Jones. Dan's. So let's, uh, you know, give him the benefit of the doubt. Bought his book. Let's see what they say. I, I'll be interested if they have anything that I don't already know. But at the very least, it'll have a better index than some of the Templar books I have. Speaking of thought processes... If there's a book by Peter Aykroyd about a city and you can afford that book, you add it to your pile. And that's where we come to Venice, Pure City by Peter Aykroyd. Yeah, again, you know, there's not a lot of mystery here. Uh, Peter Aykroyd is one of my buy-on-site authors on any topic, not just urban history, but the man who wrote London, a biography. As far as I'm concerned, he can biographize every city in Europe and I will buy every single one of them. This is his book about Venice. I suspect that as with many of the books where he writes about a, uh, a topic that is not immediately in his wheelhouse, that there will be some personal aestheticizing at places, but 
You know, Peter Aykroyd has pretty great aesthetics as well, and they're very similar to mine. So I I don't even believe I'm going to mind it at all. It's just, you know, no brainer. Uh, Next in the pile, Napoleon's Egypt, invading the Middle East by Juan Cole. This is by Juan Cole, who is a, uh, they used to be called Arabists or Orientalists, now Middle Eastern Studies guy, I guess is what he is. He has. There might be another word in there other than guy on the actual resume. Yeah, whatever. He's got a, a, a good rep. Uh, during the uh, Iraq war, he was mad as a wet hornet about George Bush and uh, did a gigantic blog about all the ways that this was a terrible, terrible idea. And he came up with the idea of saying, oh, let's look at the last liberalizing Western invasion of the Middle East and see how that turned out. And uh, this is the result, a relatively solid, I think, historical study of Napoleon uh, invading Egypt and what that wrought. And uh, what that wrought was Napoleon fleeing home in disgrace, leaving his army to be chewed up by the desert and or the Turks. So I suspect that Juan Cole may have had another agenda besides this is an understudied period of history. Let's all learn together. But, you know, every author has an agenda, walk in knowing it, and that's half the battle. Right. Roughly uh, same period of history, but on the other side of the pond, Jackson Land, President Andrew Jackson, Cherokee Chief John Ross, and a great American land grab by Steve Inskeep. Is there anything you need to say that the subtitle didn't? Very little. There is a uh, very successful subgenre of history, uh, certainly in American history, that is basically biography. And the notion is that we take these, you know, Alexander Hamilton versus Aaron Burr, George Washington versus Thomas Jefferson, you know, or their buddies, George Washington and John Adams, however you do it, and you present your period of history that you want to talk about through the light of two biographies that are paralleled. And uh, then when they run into each other, you learn things. And this obviously goes back to Plutarch. Uh, in this case, someone found the other side of the, uh, of the Cherokee land removal that uh, Jackson, I, I guess connived at is not even the right word ordered without any recourse to the law. And that was uh, John Ross, the paramount chief of the Cherokee nation. And so this is sort of a twinning biography of Jackson and, and Ross and the fact that Ross was far from blameless, but this was, as the man says, a American land grab. And I guess its greatness is, you know, dependent on how much land you own in Alabama, not necessarily anything else. Uh, so it's it's a, you know, storied version of an American history genre. And uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not Steve Inskeep can bring himself to Steelman Jackson's arguments, because uh, nowadays they're seen as bad and wrong for fairly excellent reason, really. So uh, one thing that goes all the way back to Plutarch is that if you have a segment that is too big to be one segment, you put an ad in the middle and then come back after the ad. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them, and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. 
a king waits for us. And impossible, Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by impossible landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. Which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes in entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing and we're back we've now got halfway through uh ken your pile of books on ken's bookshelf uh, which brings us to Crowns in the Gutter, a strategic analysis of World War One by Ted S. Reiser. Yeah, this is the one of these books that I did not buy at the book loft. I bought it from the table of Decision Games, who print war games. They have the old SPI catalog, and they have the old SPI ethos of one war game uh, in a magazine with all the you know information and details, and none of your fancy card-driven war games either, Robin. These are old school. You have a table, you have chits, you should be happy that we gave you a table and chits. But they also had this book, and yes, of course, I bought three war games from them. Shut up. Right. Well, why is it saying war gaming? If you don't have chits, you can't pick nits. That is that is what they say. Far away, where I've never heard them say it. Um, Racer is himself a war games designer. Uh, Crowns in the Gutter, I was hoping, would be a little more of an analysis. Uh, what it actually is, is a strategic description of World War One. It's... <laughs> Very much this happened, then that happened, which there's nothing wrong with that. Narrative is the, you know, it's how you figure out any of this stuff. But he doesn't have nearly strong enough opinions, or if he does, he presents them as fairly inevitable as opposed to, well, here's what might have happened if this. And uh, the index is extraordinarily mediocre. I looked for your and my favorite World War One personality, Arthur Curry, in it. He does not appear. I don't know if he's going to show up later on stage and just not be indexed, but I'm getting a, this is a good book if you knew less about the progress of World War One than I do, and I have been reading it, and every now and again, a, a little factoid drops, and I stroke my chin thoughtfully and say, hmm, but it's it's not the analysis that I that I, I hoped it would be. It's It's very much more, what were they thinking, and then what happened, as opposed to, was this, you know, what were the other options? What is, you know, to, to truly analyze those decisions. So from the command hut, uh, which we, uh, which rarely appears on this show, we uh, go to some books that belong in the oft appearing tradecraft hut, starting with agent Jack, the true story of MI five secret Nazi hunter by Robert Hutton. And this is a book about the guy that basically gets put in charge of something that turns into the double cross organization. But at the time, is just about winkling out all of the Nazis and fifth columnists in England and working for, I believe, Menzies in uh, MI5. Uh, right, and or then, Mingus, as we keep being told and keep refusing to and believe. keep re refusing to say. And then I believe that the Agent Jack, according to this book anyway, gets pulled out of that and is told to report solely to Churchill. And that allows Robert Hutton to claim great things for Agent Jack and just deny that they were ever written down. So I have 
sort of a cocked eye at this book. Maybe it's uh, entirely reliable, but it has the sniff of someone wrote a memoir and someone else found it. Uh, now, in uh, times of war, whether it's cold, cold war or hot war, sometimes you have to ally with the very worst elements. And, uh, you know, the worst bird, uh, I think is well established, is the pigeon. And that brings us to Operation Columba, the secret pigeon service by Gordon Carrera, uh, which I assume, uh, just like the Dracula dossier, explains how uh, British intelligence uh, recruited uh, the evil of Dracula. This Who recruited the evil of pigeons? Well, Robin, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the English are weird. They're an eccentric <laughs> lot. Many of them keep pigeons in their own homes on purpose. Well, and, you're the one who's going to be visiting them in a few weeks. Right. So, well, uh, I, get ready. so far they have refused to deny it to me. They avert their eyes and tug their forelock as well they should when they see an American. That said, this is the straight up book of how pigeon fanciers in all walks of life said, well, pigeons can be generally trusted to send messages. Let's give all the resistance in Europe pigeons. And this was how that worked. And the answer is surprisingly well, apparently, given the number of things that can go wrong, even if you're just doing a standard pigeon race over the roofs of Birmingham or wherever. But this is the the full story, the full skinny on the, on the pigeon couriers uh, used by the resistance. I think that it's not just fun as a sidelight on the resistance, but it can be the basis of, of you know, your sort of... Um, uh, Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Berlin uh, sort of story. You've got your fun Disney talking animals fighting the Nazis. I feel like that this would be a lovely textbook for that. Now we come to Night of the Assassins, the untold story of Hitler's plot to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin by Howard Blum. Yeah, this is the thing where I, I found a novel about this. The theory being that the Nazis had a secret paratrooper team that was ordered to drop into Tehran and kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin at the first Tehran conference in 1943. And the novel struck me as silly, and so I stopped reading it. But I did read in the back where the guy said, this really happened. And this is apparently a real historian who has found the same rumor that that guy had. And the rumors are, you know, they're prevalent. They're real rumors. Uh, Howard Blum did not make up the existence of this rumor, I believe that Howard Blum assumes a lot that is not in evidence, as you may notice by the words, the untold story in there. But it's certainly a great role-playing prompt if you've got these bad Nazis that are coming uh, after uh, Churchill and FDR, and you think, what if they just got Stalin? Oh, no, we shouldn't think that. That's wrong. That's that's against allied comity. Uh, but, you know, obviously, if they're these sorts of elite assassins, they must be working you know, with the Ananerba and using d dark, horrible magics that you have to stop. So, again, a great uh, role-playing jump-off, even if its virtues as history are maybe a little on the, on the skeptic side. Every so often, uh, we come across a book that uh, you purchased, but I've actually read, mm -hmm. and that, in this case, is The Ghost, The Secret Life of Spymaster James Jesus Angleton by Jefferson Morley. And uh, I found it to be a good, concise, adversarial portrait of its main figure and uh, takes you the narrative and doesn't get you bogged down in minutia and uh, is full of uh, interesting connections and sidetracks and connections to people that you uh, didn't think he had. And I remembered you having read it and thought, Robin's read this, therefore I will buy it. And I, I don't know if I don't have any Angleton books or I, I only have one, but this is, I now have one more and uh, that's the ghost.
So that uh, takes us out of the Tradecraft Hut part and into Conspiracy Corner for Conspiracies Declassified, the Skeptoid Guide to the Truth Behind the Theories by Brian Dunning. This is one where I've just, you know, dropped my thumb in and checked. Brian Dunning does seem to have an actually uh, skeptical eye. Uh, you check things like the, the JFK conspiracy to make sure that their answer is, yes, it was a unhappy communist that shot the president. That's awful. Um, and when they say that, you say, well, you've earned your skeptoid bar because that's the one where uh, many people err on the side of romance. And so this is one of many, many conspiracy books that I own, one of the much fewer debunking conspiracy books that I own, and one of the even fewer consistently debunking conspiracy books that I own. I have not dived through all of it, so perhaps there is something that our Brian falls for, or perhaps something that he claims is a conspiracy theory, like MK Ultra, that is a matter of historical fact, and he therefore gets to say the conspiracy was right, even though it's, you know, not so much a conspiracy theory, it's just an expose of awful stuff the CIA did. And uh, finally, we're going to duck into the Monster Hut for the last two titles, first of which is The World of Lore, Monstrous Creatures, by Aaron Monka. And uh, I don't know this, but uh, this podcast, but apparently there's a podcast called Lore, that this guy Aaron Monka hosts or writes or somethings. And this is a bunch of monsters from it. And they seem relatively straightforward. You know, you're, uh, you're, because it's a modern days, postmodern podcast, there's some creepypasta monsters in it, uh, along with your, uh, Mothmans and whatnot. So it's just sort of a state of the art, state of the field, uh, barometer more than it is a book that I need. Uh, to tell me about any of these things, but it will be good to know what the kids are listening to and uh, believing in or half believing in just, you know, to keep my thumb on the pulse. It's, it's a long time since I was one of the monster kids in the 1970s. So this is a, a valuable addition, I'm sure. Uh, and there's others in the series about haunted places and whatnot. So if you're a fan of the lore podcast, there's apparently lore podcast tie in books. Now you can turn podcasts into books interesting mm. Mm. strokes chin finally fantastic creatures of the mountains and seas a chinese classic by jian kun sun illustrated by siu shen and this takes a little bit of explaining there is a book called a classic of the mountains and seas that was written down probably during the han dynasty Obviously, the actual copies that we have now are from, you know, the Ming era at, at, at the oldest, but the book seems to go back to circa 400 AD, give or take. And it, it is a travelogue in the sense that it is a fantastical geography of all the weird stuff that happens outside China proper. And if you're a good Confucian, you will stay on your family's land and till it, and you won't go into these weird lands, but you might enjoy reading how people who are not blessed by Confucian rightness have to live. And many of them have to live with wings, apparently. So it's a, you know, Mandevillian style book without the narrator personality. It's a sort of a Pliny uh, without the explicit attempt at actual encyclopedism. It, it's, it's that sort of a, of a book. And I have the Penguin edition of it, which is fine. And this has really beautiful illustrations by Siu Chen and just talks about the monsters. And it is, it's gorgeous. 
The translation is, is, is very clean by, uh, an, uh, American scholar, I believe, or a Canadian scholar. And I bought it legitimately just for the drawings because they are so good. I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of weird, you know, travel loggy corners of the earth, here be dragons type stuff. Anyway, this is the Chinese one. And, uh, at the very least, I should be able to dig out the ones of the west beyond the mountains to put into Hellenistica in the farthest east part of that game. So. That'll be fun if I can uh, recycle some of these guys. Well, uh, speaking of mountains, it's time for this podcast to clamber uh, over the beautiful mountains onto the other side and then walk around the entire world for a week. And at the end of that week, there'll be another podcast episode waiting for you in your earphones of choice. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Save this podcast from the wrecking ball by joining such preservation-minded backers as... Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover. Ian Nystrom. Kelly Fisher. Yuri Horniman and Theron Bretz. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Put on your best faces with our latest design. Ready for my close-up, Mr. Pickman. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.